Hello, and welcome to a slightly different podcast. Normally on Sharp Scratch, we have a panel here that all discusses together an issue that affects medical students and new doctors. But recently, we've been picking up on some of the issues that the BMJ has highlighted in its special edition on racism in medicine. Last week, you heard our amazing panel members, Chidera and Raihan, talk a little bit about the experiences they've had with microaggressions. And today, I'll be talking with our expert guest, Yvonne Cockhill, about how we can tackle some of these problems. Yvonne is an amazing woman. She is the director of the Workforce Race Equality Standard at NHS England and NHS Improvement, and was also recently elected deputy president of the Royal College of Nursing. Yvonne spent 20 years nursing before taking up operational and strategic leadership posts. And today we're absolutely delighted to have her with us talking about the work that she's been doing and what we can all do on a day-to-day basis to make sure the voices of staff who are from ethnic minority backgrounds in the NHS have their voices heard. I'm Anna and I'm normally part of the Sharp Scratch panel. We'll have the rest of the team back with us next week, don't worry. But for now, here's Yvonne. My name is Yvonne Coghill and I am currently the Director of the Workforce Race Equality Standard at NHS England and NHS Improvement. I'm also the Deputy President of the Royal College of Nursing, so that's that's wonderful. I have been nursing for the last, oh, 42 years of my life I have been a nurse. Um, and I say that because I trained in 1977. Um, as a general nurse at Central Middlesex Hospital. I then went on to become a psychiatric nurse. I then trained to become a health visitor and was working in primary care for quite some time. I then wanted to become a director of nursing because that was my trajectory to become a director of nursing after doing lots of other courses and qualifications and degrees and so on. Um, And I found that I couldn't become a director of nursing because I went for five director of nursing posts and got none of them. And what that did was made me start to rethink who I was. It knocked my self-esteem, it knocked my self-confidence. And I thought, the NHS doesn't want me and I don't want the NHS, I'm going to leave. But at that point, uh, a wonderful person by the name of uh, Nigel Crisp... He is Lord Crisp now, but he was Sir Nigel Crisp at the time, uh, the Chief Executive of the NHS and Permanent Secretary at the time because the Department of Health and NHS were much more um, cohesive and close, closer together than they are now, uh, was launching something called the Leadership Race Equality Action Plan and he was looking for somebody to mentor. And to cut a long story short, I became his mentee and also his private secretary. So rather than leaving the NHS, I went into the belly of the beast, which was the Department of Health as Nigel's private secretary and his mentee. And it was there that I started to gain my interest in inequalities and particularly uh, race inequality. Because when you're sitting on top of the whole of the NHS, like he was, you're able to see exactly what's going on across the whole. Whereas when you're sitting in a in a region or a patch or a hospital or a primary care area, 
you think that the world revolves around that little area and everything that happens there is is you know at the center of the universe when in fact it kind of isn't so when i got to the department of health and recognized that the thing that happened to me the going for five jobs and not getting any of them was not uncommon amongst people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds I began to look into it a little bit more and that's where my interest was was kind of sparked into doing the work that I'm doing now. Mm. And what is the work you're doing now? Well I have the best job in the world really. I am the director of the Workforce Race Equality Standard. The Workforce Race Equality Standard is designed to look at the experience of black and ethnic minority staff in our NHS and white staff in our NHS Um, and look at the difference, because there is a difference, and ultimately try to close the gap on that difference. So we have nine indicators that we measure every year, and then we put out a report to actually show the system this is what's going on in the NHS, in provider organisations. We also do it for arm's length bodies as well, and are about to put out a document for um, CCGs and ICSs, And we are going to be doing one specifically for the medical workforce as well. So what we aim to do is to make our NHS fairer and more equitable, not just because it's the right thing to do, which it is, but to make sure that we get higher levels of patient care, patient safety and patient satisfaction. Because if you have a a workforce that's cared for, it cares more. So we want that extra 10% of discretionary effort from everybody. We also know that we need to keep the people that we have in the NHS working in our NHS because we have 43,000 nursing vacancies. We have lots of doctor vacancies and particularly in primary care. We know that that, that, that generation of uh, of baby boomer doctors and nurses are all you know about to leave and what we need is for them to stay and keep working keep enjoying what they're doing and passing on their expertise to the younger generation so in order for that to happen we have to make sure that the 20 percent of people that are working in our nhs from black and minority ethnic backgrounds feel valued appreciated um, and and respected And as it stands at the moment, it isn't quite that. Because what they know is that if you are from a a white background, you're more likely to be appointed. If you are from a white background, you're less likely to go through the formal disciplinary processes. If you are from a white background, you're more likely to be sent on non-mandatory training. And if you are from a black and ethnic minority background, you're more likely to be uh, harassed and bullied, um, not only by patients, but also by your colleagues. So people from um, ethnic minority backgrounds know this. Um, And when you know this, it plays upon your mind, it plays upon who you are, it plays upon your confidence and your self-esteem Um, And it makes you feel less valued than other people. So by trying to make this better for all of uh, our staff, trying to make the situation, the culture in our organisations more conducive, the wish is that ultimately what we get will be a much more um, conducive Mm -hmm. NHS for everybody, ultimately culminating in patients having a better experience. Mm. And I find what you're saying about 
identity and stress um, really, really interesting. And, and we'll probably touch upon that a little bit later. Um, but first, I thought um, maybe we could talk a little bit about you say you use nine indicators. Yes. Um, how long have you been sort of tracking this in the same way? And, and yeah. what have you found? You know, are yes. things getting better? Are they not? Are they stagnating? Okay, so so the indicators were developed um, five years ago now, actually. And so we've got four years of very robust data. Mm. Indicator number one looks at career progression. And what we know is that if you are from a black and ethnic minority background, there is a glass ceiling. What happens then is that fewer and fewer people from black and ethnic minority backgrounds get to the more senior levels in our NHS. And one of the things that we're aiming to do through a um, initiative called the Model Employer is to increase the number of uh, black and ethnic minority people going up through that pipeline so that by 2028, at the end of the, the long-term plan, 2018 to 2028, we have equity of the people working within our NHS so that there will be equal numbers of black and ethnic minority staff and white staff depending on which organisation they're working for, there should be equity. Now, of course, in London, that's going to be much more difficult because there are many, many more black and ethnic minority people working in London. So London's going to have to work twice as hard to get half as far. So we're trying to close the gap on the differential, the difference between black and ethnic minority staff languishing at the lower levels and, and mostly predominantly white staff at the very top of the organisations. Indicators two, three and four are what we call our process indicators. So for indicator two, looking at whether or not you're more likely to be given the post from shortlisting. We know that as many BME people apply as white people. It's only when they walk into the room and are interviewed that we see the dropping off of the numbers of people that are offered posts. So what we know is that black and ethnic minority people are about one and a half times less likely to get the jobs than white people. Similarly, with the formal disciplinary processes, if you're from a black and ethnic minority background, you're more likely to go through the formal disciplinary processes. And not only that, you're more likely to have draconian uh, actions against you. So sending off to the NMC and the GMC and so on, so that actually it becomes a really, really difficult and horrible process for you to go through. Indicator four is about being sent on non-managed training. So are we going to develop you? Are you going to be um, able to go off and do, I don't know, a degree or do some sort of training? And again, if you're from a white background, you have more uh, likelihood of going off on those types of training than if you're from a BME background. Over the last four years, what we've seen with those indicators is that we are beginning to close the gap on white and BME experience, which is fantastic. And the reason I think that that has happened is because these indicators are very easy to change. <laughs> if you put a lot of effort into them, you will change overnight the indicators. So if you change the way you recruit people, if you change your policies and processes around disciplinaries, and if you decide you're going to send people off on non-mandatory training, you can change your data very, very quickly. Indicators five through to eight are what we call the cultural indicators. This is what it feels like to be around here. This is what the organisation, the culture of the organisation. So bullying and harassment from patients, which is um, quite common, 
and um, over the last few years since we've been doing the workforce in uh, race equality uh, standard um, has in, has increased for all the reasons that we know that all the things that are going on in society between 2015 and now we know that you know it's been a really tricky time in the country for all sorts of reasons but not least the b word which i will not i will not say on here so all of that's going on so so staff have to deal with you know, bullying and harassment from patients and their relatives indicator six is about what your fellow staff think about you your colleagues your peers and and whether or not you feel bullied and harassed by them indicator seven is looking at um equal opportunities do you feel that you're getting equal opportunities within within this organization and indicator eight is whether or not you're feeling bullied and harassed and dis discriminated against by your senior leaders those indicators um, are much more tricky to shift because they're cultural indicators and I'm afraid that what we've got for BME and white staff, and I think it's important that we, we say this, uh, is that those indicators are kind of flatlining um, for BME and for white staff. So the culture in the NHS isn't conducive for anybody, but it's, it's worse for people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. And then, of course, indicator nine is the numbers of black and ethnic minority people on boards. That's non-executives and executives. And we've seen a steady increase, um, not a huge increase, but we know that now, so for example, in London, every single board has somebody from a, a black and minority ethnic background, whereas back in 2015, there were only 16 organisations, there's 35 organisations in London, uh, provider organisations in London. So it has improved, but it's going very, very slowly. So we need to make sure that we do things to make it, to give it a push, to, to, to make things better for people quicker and faster. That's, that's the plan. It's interesting to see, you know, what you said is that if a lot of money and effort is put into certain ones of those mm -hmm. indicators, mm -hmm. they can improve quite quickly, but others yes. actually are a lot more difficult to change. Yeah. And I just wondered, we've sort of had a little discussion of the yeah. data that you've collected, but, you know, if you, you've you been working in the NHS for 42 years. I know, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> From your sort of personal experience, because a lot of the people who are listening will be probably quite new to the NHS, yes. um, maybe only have had experience as a patient before, um, before they go to medical school or mm. nursing school or whatever it is they're doing. You know, could you give us some sort of ideas about how things might have changed in the time that you've been working? Golly. Um so t to start off with, let me just say that I love the NHS. It's It's been a wonderful career. Um, it, I've made amazing friends. I met my husband who used to be a, a mental health nurse. Um, so the NHS has been my, it's, it's been my life and, and, and I've absolutely loved it. How's it changed? It's changed phenomenally over the last 20 odd years, I think. It's become very, very different in the way it um, the way it functions. I remember um, when we first went into general management and we decided that we needed to have people who had general management experience come into the NHS and and lead the NHS. Uh, so they didn't need, necessarily need to have NHS experience. I think there's there's pros and cons 
for that. Mm. Um, I think people coming in from outside of the NHS that don't know its culture will probably be in for a shock of their lives mm-hmm. um, and have to learn it very, very quickly. What's changed is that, and this is from my perspective, is that the NHS was always a very, I think, a very hierarchical organisation and very process-driven organisation targets, making sure that we hit our targets, making sure that, you know, uh, the money stacks up. Mm. Those were really, really important things in our NHS, incredibly important things to make sure that, you know, there's value for money. Um, and in my time when I was working as a primary care development manager, as a ward sister in mental health and so on, there wasn't a year that went by where we didn't have to look at saving money. We had to save money uh, up until um, probably it was tw- 1999, 2000, um, when, and I'm not going to mention the name of the person, but there was there's more money put into the NHS mm. over a 10-year period. Uh, and then we didn't have to so much look at, um, you know, saving every penny and making sure they all stacked up. But targets were still really, really important. We went into a time when we went through uh, into strategic health authorities and PCTs and we had PCGs. Uh, so, 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 so that changed and, and, and funding was devolved down to the, to the front line and locally decisions were made and, and so on. And that was great and that was good. But we are a very process-driven organisation and we value people who are very um, structured in their, in their approach, mm. who write well, who speak well, who can hit the targets. Mm. And what we've done over many, many years is to appoint people into senior level positions who are very skilled at doing those things. What we haven't done is uh, help to promote people who have different skill sets. So if you're seen as being soft and squidgy and cuddly, mm. it, 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 it hasn't really uh, been the organisation for you in the past. What we're saying now, and everybody's saying, is that we really do need to have um, people who are compassionate leaders, people who listen with fascination, who understand what people are saying, who can then act uh, in a way that is compassionate and supportive of staff. So we're looking for people who are um, much more, I would imagine, empathetic and in Mm. touch with their own emotions as well as other people's emotions, so the staff that they're managing. And when you have had years and years and years and years of being successful, as a, a process-driven manager, you know, hitting your targets and making sure you push people to hit their targets and so on. And then all of a sudden the system says, well, actually, we don't want that. What mm. we want you to be is somebody who's empathetic and thoughtful and kind and, and somebody who is going to really work with the people that they have to make them the best that they can be. It's a big ask because mm. not everybody is going to be able to make that shift in an organisation with 1.4 million people very quickly. Mm. And so we are in a situation now where we are saying openly and loudly that our people are the most important thing in our NHS. We, we, we need to value them, appreciate them, nurture them, develop them, respect them. And that's not something that we have done very well in the past. 
so now we're saying this is what we need and this is what we want. And the question is, do the people who are working in the NHS believe it? And do they believe that actually this is a different time for us? We want to stay with the system. We want to stay in the NHS and help it to be the best organisation, healthcare organisation in the world, based on the fact that you're saying this is how it's going to be. So the new people plan is uh, has in there some core elements about how we are going to treat people and treat them much better, be much more flexible with them and so on. It also talks about making the NHS the best place to work and what does that look like, a little bit more flexibility, being able to have your breaks on time, being able to take a drink of water whilst you're on shift, you know, looking at these long 12-hour shifts that we expect people to work on, changing the way that we we, we value and and appreciate them, recognising they have a life outside of Mm. the NHS, which they have to actually pay attention to as well. And so us beginning to think about how we treat our staff and how we treat um, all of our staff is where we're at at the moment. So that's very, very different to when I was sort of cutting my teeth in the NHS, when it was all about hitting the targets and making sure you save the money. And I guess what I was kind of thinking of a bit when um, you were talking about moving from this sort of hierarchical system to one that's maybe more of, you know, we talk about flat yeah. hierarchies a lot and anyone being able to speak up um, mm. about patient safety issues. But yeah. it's similar when we're talking about, you know, structural inequalities um, and we should be facilitating people to say, you know, no, this needs to change. Yeah. Like, it's unacceptable that this has been happening. Um, but I think what I wanted to ask you about was you've done some work internationally as well, haven't mm. you? I've um, I was reading your um, your bio and your Wikipedia page this morning, um, <laughs> and I just wondered whether you thought you know based on the the work you've done internationally, mm. the NHS is a very unique organisation. Mm. Is there elements about the way that we work in the NHS that have made it more challenging or? less challenging for us to address these issues of race right yeah i mean it's a great question actually um and i think we need to start off with with recognizing that this thing that we're dealing with called race inequality is a global issue It, it it is not specific to the nhs it's not specific to london or england or the uk or europe it's it's a global issue what we have is a society across the the world that values people more the less melanin they have in their skin that's a fact we have so much evidence that shows that that's the case um that you're more likely to be successful if you have uh come from a white background than if you come from a uh, black and minority ethnic background and i think that that's that's the, the key thing to think about I think the NHS is unique in that we are the only organisation I know of globally, and and I do a lot of work with uh, Professor David Williams. Uh, He's my guru. He's like God in this world uh, of race inequality. And, and, And nobody else is doing what we're doing, which is to call out these problems, to to really say, look, we recognise that there's an issue here. Um, and to look at the differences in experience between black and ethnic minority staff and white staff and try to close the gap on that for our patients. There's nowhere else that that we know of, that's me and Dr Williams, uh, that's doing doing work quite like that. Um, 
So it's it's really fantastic that we're doing the work that, that we are doing in order to improve and help patients. I know that there are some um, universities that are looking at, at, at something similar in terms of um, differential attainment of mm. black and ethnic minority students, but not quite in the same way, which is year on year looking at the data and the difference between white staff and BME, BME staff mm. and trying to close the gap on that. So I think the NHS deserves credit for doing that. I think the senior leadership that we have deserve, and deserve credit and people will say, oh, this is the sycophantic suck up bit, but actually it's not. It is without people who will enable and empower and support this work that I'm doing, it will stay in the long grass and, and, and stay languishing there. And that hasn't happened. They've held their hands up and said, OK, we need to do something about this. And whether that's because it's the right thing to do, the moral thing to do, the financial thing to do, the quality case, or whatever it is that's made them decide that this is a good thing to do, happy days, because it means that we can actually start working on this sanctioned and anointed by our senior leadership, which means we can go further faster. So the work that you've been doing is really, you know, I like the term you use, which is calling out, you've been calling out people, you know, right from the upper echelons of the NHS. So I guess like on the other end of that, for people who are perhaps, you know, don't hold senior management positions, people who are just ground level I say just, this is not just at all, but no, people who I, I are ground level, um, yes. people working and studying in the NHS, what kind of sort of actions should yes. we be taking yes. on a day-to-day basis? Yes. I, I think it's a, it's, it's a great question and it's one that I'm constantly asked, what should we do, how should mm. we, you know. I can imagine. The, 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 the thing that really works is, is listening. Um, and believing. So when I first started down this road, it was really interesting because people would, you give them the data and they would come up with 150,000 reasons why it wasn't right. Well, is that data correct? Is, are you sure? We haven't got, we haven't got two years worth of data. We need to do a longitudinal study. We need to, every reason under the sun that this could not possibly be right. So actually listening and, and hearing people's different experience to yours is the place to start. It really genuinely is the place to start because we don't usually do that. What we usually do is um, want to come back with, well, it's not quite like that and get that chip off his shoulder. And that used to happen in the 60s. It doesn't happen now. It, all these things that people want to say when it's somebody else's experience, if it's somebody else's experience and they're willing to talk to you about it, then please listen, hear what they're saying to you. And invariably, we don't ask because we don't hear. We don't, we don't hear the bad news. It's just not what we want to do. But if you start listening to people, people will start speaking up and start talking about their experiences. Your next job then is once you've empathised with them is to say to yourself, OK, this is what's happening to this individual. And I believe it. It's, 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 not, it's not right. It's not fair. It's not good. What do I do about it? And this is where you need to take action in small ways because if you're working at field level potentially you can't change the whole of the nhs strategically from up there but it's 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 enabling people it's supporting them it's if they're having a difficult time and somebody's saying horrible things to them calling it out and stopping them and saying look actually that's not right 
don't. That's not fair. Don't. It's supporting people. It, it, I cannot tell you how important it is for people who are being um, subjected to difficult times and situations based on the colour of their skin, how important it is them to feel that they have their colleagues and others supporting them. Um, it, I cannot stress, it's so, so important. And people don't do it. People will just sit or stand silently and say nothing. Um, and I guess they say nothing because they feel frozen into, oh my God, I don't want to get involved in this. Um, but unless we unless we get involved in it and put ourselves in it, then it's going to continue happening and we're never going to change anything. So in order for things to change, we need everybody to understand and know what they need to do around this agenda. And that is to join in to help with the struggle for mm. fairness and equality. Mm. So it's, it's everyone's responsibility. It's everyone's responsibility. Yeah, and it's something we've spoken about on the podcast before, actually. We um, did an episode on, you know, what we should do um, if a patient is saying racist or sexist stuff. Um, And I think what you've highlighted is, you know, there are so many instances of people just not getting the support that they need in those instances. So um, one of our um, panel members on that episode spoke about an incident that they... Um, were aware of where you know the senior management had just not been supportive at all and had said oh okay well we'll just send a white doctor to go and see them um yeah you know that's obviously that's not completely not helpful not or appropriate helpful. in any way no. and it is a real problem and, and particularly for clinicians because you, patients will you know say things that are really unpleasant and horrible and dreadful the difference between saying something dreadful to a white person and something to a BME person is that invariably they use your race as a, you know, I don't want you to nurse me, you beep, 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 mm. black something, as opposed to I don't want you to beep, beep, beep. It's 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 different. Mm. So the black thing comes into it and, and that's deeply offensive. Mm. What organisations have to do, because it is zero tolerance around all of this, but if you have a patient that's... De- you know, suffering from dementia or they're not very, you know, mentally not very well or whatever it is and they say these things, we still have to give them, we still have to treat them. So what do you do in that situation? What you do in that situation is you support your member of staff, you wrap your arms around your member of staff and you make sure that they know that they're valued and appreciated and that that they are a, a valuable resource. It, you can't do anything about the patient who's not well saying these things. What can you do? You can't not you can't stop giving people treatment. But what you can do is you can make sure that the environment that your member of staff is working in is a very loving, uh, kind, conducive environment. Uh, a colleague was telling me about an experience up in uh, the northeast, uh, northeast, northeast ambulance trust actually, and he had been out and called, been called all sorts of names and so on. But when he got back to his organisation, the organisation was so kind and so nice and offered him counselling and support and help. And he said that meant so much to him. So. There's things that you can't do anything about. Yes, you can put up the signs and say, you know, zero tolerance here and all the rest of it. And if it's something that's awful and terrible, yes, you can report it to the police. But invariably, you've got this clinical thing that goes on with patients. And that's when the organisation needs to be very clear about how it supports its staff. 
Uh, what you don't do is say, well, actually, you go off there and do something else in the back room and we'll send a white doctor to or a white nurse to the to the patient. It, it doesn't it's it, it just makes you feel much worse. Mm. Um, so what organizations need to do is to have systems in place to support their staff when these things happen. And they happen a lot. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's I suppose there are difficulties in dealing with patients who are being racist and it's a bit different from other staff members particularly which is something we discussed actually at, at quite great length um in our sort of previous episode of this podcast mm. um particularly when it's not overt no. and it's you know we we read out the um definition of the word microaggressions and um my colleague Chadera um who was also on the podcast said that the first time she heard the definition of the word microaggressions she nearly cried because she realized that actually it wasn't just her no. it was happening to other people and there was a word for it and she could stop feeling like Oh, I don't know whether this like is, coming, is this like yeah like nuts. is this is this is this just me? Um, so yeah. yeah, I kind of just wondered like what your thoughts were on the best ways to sort of approach that with the workforce. Mm. I think it's a it's a really difficult one because to put your your finger on uh, microaggressions is a really really tricky thing to do so you know we know what the macroaggressions are and we can see them and witness them and feel them and know that they exist but when people are uh, being uh, just just slightly um, uh, I don't want to call it racist but slightly unpleasant about you because of your color of your skin or the way your hair is or how you speak it, it it's a really difficult thing to call out because then you think to yourself did I hear that did that was that is that was that me is that and you begin you you really do begin to think the way you you work with this stuff um is is education people have to understand um how situations impact on other people and how things that you say can impact on other people and a lot of it's done by ignorance because people will say things like, well, I didn't really mean that. And I'm colorblind, actually. I have black friends. I don't think about whether or not, you know, I don't think about, you know, color. Mm. Well, actually, please think about my color because my color is who I am. And, and, and I need you to consider that if you think you are going to be my friend. Mm. Um, so, so when people say these things, they just, they just say them without even giving them too much, to giving them too much thought. So it's really important that people understand that what they say really can impact on on other people. It, it's those little things. It's little things like having to think about, well, I have to go twice as far to get the food that I want to cook for my family because actually they don't sell it in the shop up the road. Um, they don't sell it up in the shop. I'll give you an, ex an example of this. It was really interesting for me personally. I was looking for hairpins because I now put my hair in plaits and I was wanting my little bun on the top of my head and I want to put some hairpins in it. Could I find black hairpins anywhere? Not a chance. Blonde ones, brown ones, dark brown ones, all over the place. I went to Superdrug, I went to Boots, I went all over the place. Eventually I got them on, online. But I complained to 
Superdrug and I complained to, am I allowed to say the names of these shops? Oh, well, anyway, I've said them. Um, I, I complained to them about not being able to get these hairpins. And what they said was, there's no call for them, right? The cut that color for black. Um, so they obviously, they, they stock the shops with what they people buy, which means that I had to go and look specifically and specially online to find what I was looking for. I couldn't find it in a shop, you know, over the counter. You'd think something like as simple as that would be nice and easy. It was not. It's that kind of thing that puts extra pressure on you, extra stress on you. You have to go the extra mile to find what you're looking for, what you need as a person of colour in, you know, the United Kingdom in 2020. It's fascinating. And if you go out of the urban areas, well, just forget it. <laughs> it's just, it's impossible. You get looking for tights that are or stockings that are the that match the color of your skin is just like forget it mm. no chance it all of those things impact on you by saying actually is this society really for me it doesn't it's not considering me and my needs and what i need i mean nowadays it's much easier to get the right color lippy and makeup and all the rest of it it's much easier but 10 years ago not a chance. Yeah, I remember I was, uh, I did a lot of ballet dancing when I was a child. I remember the first time that one of the leotard companies brought out a range that had a nude colour that was any colour other than the colour of white people's skin. Yeah. It's like, that's not everyone's nude, you no. know? No, it's um, not. And it was, you know, the, the dance world was amazed by it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was that was very recently, yeah. um, and things I guess like sticking plasters as well. Flesh coloured, flesh coloured. Yeah. <laughs> so who's flesh? <laughs> not my, not mine. It, you you have all of that, and and you know even in in our in our world in the in the health world, you know we're coming around to it, but prostheses and mm -hmm. so on being made in a certain colour. You know, we have to start thinking about the fact that we are a society that has 20% of our population, and that's going to increase, from different backgrounds, and they have a you know, percentage of melanin in their skin. So how do we manage that? So it, it, your question about microaggressions is, is a really good one, because it happens a lot, and it happens all the time in different ways, in different environments, the way you speak, the way you, you pick up sort of nuances, the things that are... Um, relevant to you in your society and within your your culture, which might be very different in the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. And because it's the dominant culture, it expects you to conform. So invariably, what happens is that people try to assimilate um, because they're not they recognise that they're not going to be accepted if they just bring their whole selves into the into the mix. So it's double twice as much stress on you which is why you get you know black and ethnic minority people having many more issues heart problems diabetes all of, all of it all of it than their white counterparts mm. i guess that comes back to those indicators you were talking about which you know we've not done too well at actually improving are the ones that are around culture and yeah. if you're being you know sort of insidiously told actually the culture of this place and the culture of this organization does not include people who look like you it's not going to improve no no and that's the hard part um <clears throat> i think people have um traditionally within the nhs anyway um looked at uh, equality diversity and inclusion and given it to the lowest common denominator to to to, to, to fix it so 
uh, in the past, people have just sort of ticked the box in terms of EDI. EDI. So we look at, um, well, we make sure that we collect the data. So that's a tick in the box. Uh, we make sure that we send the data here. So that's a tick in the box. I mean, that's a pro those are processes. What we haven't done, and we, we haven't, is really work with this thing called race inequality at higher levels so we can have these serious conversations about what it feels like to be a black and minority ethnic person working here and what I know as a black and ethnic minority person potentially will happen to me or not happen to me as a consequence of who I am. Those conversations were not had up until about four or five years ago in the whole history of the NHS. It was just, it wasn't seen as important. It wasn't seen as being relevant. So there's a lot of catching up to do in terms of the people who can speak to this thing that we're talking about here in a way that others are going to hear. And people from white backgrounds feeling comfortable enough to talk about it. It's a fascinating thing. When I go to the States, the white people in the States have no problem, none whatsoever, are calling a black person a black person. That black person over there, you should you should try to listen to white people try to describe me <laughs> without using the word black. It's, a, well, she's tall and she, you know, she, she wears that bun thing on her head and she, everything apart from, well, she's that black woman. They will, they just struggle to say the word black. Whereas in America, it just trips off the tongue. A black person over there, a black. It's 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 absolutely fascinating, and I wonder what that is and why people struggle with the word black. Um, I I haven't got an answer for you, by the way. I don't know why they struggle with it. Maybe you can tell me. I think they believe the word black is being offensive to the the individual, but it's who I am. <laughs> I'm a black woman, so why would it be offensive to me? So if I can say to your listeners, if you see a black person. Call them black. That's who they are. <laughs> that's, what they, that's what they are. It doesn't. They're not going to be offended by that in any way, shape, or form. Um, and then, of course, we come to the the thing where people say, "Well, I'm not black, actually," because brown people say this thing. So, who are brown people? Who are they? So, they're invariably they're people from the Asian subcontinent who would rather not be referred to as being. African Caribbean because they perceive those people as being black people. <laughs> so then you get into this really difficult situation where people don't know if they should call you black, call you brown, call you ethnic, call you, and it becomes really ridiculous. The whole thing just starts to fall apart. And in America, they call them people of color. So if you've got any melanin in your skin, you're a person of color. We don't like doing that over here because we don't want to follow those Americans. We don't want to be you know, part of that. So we don't. So there's this difficult conversation that people of colour or minority ethnic people, call them what you like, are having amongst themselves about, well, you're black over there and you're brown over there. And what that does is the absolute thing that we don't want to happen, which is to start to have a hierarchy of difference. So I prefer this brown person because they're not as black as that person. I prefer that yellow person. And if we start to do that amongst ourselves which and I won't give you the example but an example happened the other day um, then it makes it much worse it makes it much worse for us if we are not seen as cohesive and collective in the struggle against racism and intolerance because what we're doing is we're playing 
to uh, an audience that would be happy for us to start fighting amongst ourselves because it stops us from focusing on on them. Okay, so unfortunately we're coming to the end of our time together. A lot of the stuff we've talked about has been very nuanced and it's clear that there's still quite a long way for us to go as an organisation and not even to mention as a wider society. Um, But I just wondered if, you know, where can people go to get more information about this? If, you know, something has happened to them in the NHS, what's the best sort of route for them to make a complaint? Um, Do you have any kind of information about that? Right, so to get information, it's quite easy. Go online, NHS, uh, England and put in the res team and you'll get all the information that you could possibly want in terms of the documentation and so on and so forth. I've also got uh, another um, uh, place to go to get information, research and so on called uh, www.workplaceedi.com and that's a website that uh, I've set up with we have set up with Jeremy Dawson and Michael West who everybody knows in the NHS looking at Uh, what works around this agenda, what helps, um, looking at research and so on and so forth. It's it's really, it's a really good thing. So Workplace EDI is somewhere people can get. Third place people can go to get help and support is our our, um, Freedom to Speak Up guardians. Uh, Henrietta Hughes is GP, as you know, doctor, who's a fantastic advocate for for the work that we do and, and us for hers. Um, and looking for many, many more people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds to be guardians Mm. so that they can go somewhere safe and speak up. In the new, brave new world of the people directorate that I'm working in, um, we are going to have a a directorate specifically looking at advocacy and support for people from all backgrounds so that people are able to speak up and say, this is the situation for me and get the help and support that they need. I think that in the past, people have struggled, you know, they go to their unions, and then it all escalates, and it all gets very, very difficult. The thing that I said to you right at the very beginning of our conversation about when people speak up, listening, and hearing, and then empathising, and then acting in an appropriate way is 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 absolutely key so that everybody's responsibility again, even though, you know, I've talked about the formal places that you can go to get that help and support. It starts with the individual and and that individual actually taking some action to help support the person that's going through the very difficult and hard. Mm. Okay. Well, I'll put some of those links um, in the description of this episode um, in case anyone's interested in visiting some of those websites. Um, Thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, It's been really enlightening for me. Um, I hope that our listeners will have found something interesting. I'm sure, absolutely so sure, <laughs> absolutely sure that they will have. Um, so before we wrap up, mm. is there any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Just to say, I think, um, because a lot of the listeners will be clinicians and they will be people who are you know, really interested in this this agenda as well, that, that without the people that we have working in our NHS, regardless of their background, our NHS could not function. The job of senior leaders and managers, um, I believe, is to enable um, 
our students to be the best that they could be, our doctors to be the best, the nurses to be the best, to give them an environment to working that is conducive to them being able to make things better for all our patients. That's our job. And if that means calling things out, uh, doing things and behaving in different ways to make things better for all of our staff, then that is exactly what we have to do. So a massive thank you to Yvonne for coming in and spending time talking to us. If you're interested in anything that we spoke about in that interview, we'll make sure that all of the links to the info that Yvonne spoke about are in the episode description. We'll be back with the team next week to talk about anxiety. So make sure that you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. Just search for Sharp Scratch. If you've enjoyed this slight change to our normal broadcasting, why not let us know? Just search BMJ Student on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. But for now, it's goodbye from me.